0: Welcome to this BTOG podcast. My name is Tom newsom davis I'm a medical oncologist at Chelsea and Westminster Hospital in London. I'm also the vice chair of the BTOG steering committee.
1: And I'm Leanne Castle, a respiratory physician at Barts Hospital in London.
0: This is part of our regular podcast series where we have informal chats with experts in their fields and tackle the most important issues we all face in the diagnosis and treatment of thoracic cancers.
1: It is important to say that the sponsors of BTOG do not have any role whatsoever in the planning, content or delivery of anything discussed in these podcasts. We would love to hear your questions and comments on things we have discussed in this podcast. Please contact us via email at info at or Twitter at BTOG.org. And we will include some of your comments in our next podcast.
0: Please review and like us on the platform where you access your podcasts to help us spread the word about BTOG educational events. Thank you.
1: Welcome to this BT podcast on the management of thymic lesions. We're very pleased to welcome Henrietta Wilson, a consultant thoracic surgeon, as our expert for this podcast. Henrietta is an adult thoracic surgeon at Bart's Hospital in London and has a special interest in the management of anterior mediastinal masses and robotic thymectomy for myasthenia gravis. Uh, Henrietta has extensive experience um, in robotic surgery and trains other sage- surgeons throughout the UK and Europe in this minimally invasive technique. We're really keen to learn all, uh, from her expertise tonight and Tom is particularly excited to learn all about the robot later. Welcome, Henrietta. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, so um, uh, we've uh, had other uh, podcasts where we've talked about the uh, management of metastatic uh, thymic lesions. But today we wanted to kind of focus on the uh, uh, initial workup. So just to kind of kick off, what uh, in patients with anterior my- mediastinal masses, um, they can have a broad spectrum of diagnoses. And is there anything on the initial CT which we should be looking for to help us differentiate between thymoma, lymphoma and germ cells?
2: Yeah, so <clears throat> CT scanners are really useful investigation to do up front for anterior mediastinal masses. Um, and it may often in some cases be the only imaging that we require. And there are a number of features that I look at when, or or ask my radiology colleagues about when I'm thinking about what the differential diagnosis might be. Firstly, we need to think about the composition. So is the lesion cystic solid? Does it contain calcium? And all of these may give us some Uh, indication as to the diagnosis. Encapsulation is really important from a surgical point of view. A well-encapsulated solitary anterior mediastinal solid lesion is a thymoma until proven otherwise. If the lesion is invading surrounding structures or diving between other structures, then we may need to think more about what we're dealing with. Uh, Extension, so where the lesion comes from, Um, We often forget that uh, the thyroid gland can travel down behind the sternum Uh, and if you just are looking at the chest and not up into the neck then that's something that can be missed. And also is there any disease elsewhere in the chest? Is there any pleural effusion, pericardial effusion, pericardial deposits? All of this together will start to give us an idea of whether we're dealing with a thymoma and we can move straight on to looking at surgical options or whether we need to think about alternative diagnosis such as lymphoma, germ cell tumor, um, thyroid gland etc. So really CT scan is the first investigation of choice and gives us an awful lot of information when planning what we do next.
1: So which kind of patients need a biopsy before you think about resection is it is it those ca- cases where you're not so clear whether it's a lymphoma or germ cell or sometimes is it needed for the kind of more clear cut thymomas yeah yeah so generally speaking if we've
2: got a well encapsulated solid anterior mediastinal mass on ct scan with a patient with normal germ cell markers or somebody who doesn't really fall into that high risk category, then we would consider this to be a thymic epithelial tumor and we go straight to resection. Biopsy when you've got a very a tumor that is very likely to be a thymoma is not a good idea because you risk seeding uh, and you go from a situation where a surgical resection would be curative to the possibility of having pleural pericardial metastasis in the future. The primary aim is showing... just ask you
0: about that because yeah, I, I get asked that quite a lot by patients in lung cancer, people with advanced stage disease, and we say, Don't worry, we need a biopsy. But actually, the so you're saying the evidence in thymoma is really clear that you can seed a
2: yeah, so thymoma is a little bit different to lung cancer that's in that situation. That um, it depends on the stage of disease, so thymoma is staged very differently at the moment. Um, size of tumour is not within the staging and it's all about encapsulation. So if you've got an mass that has a clear capsule, it's not invading anything else, then you want to remove that within its capsule. You don't want to break the capsule, you don't want to put a needle into the capsule because you go from a stage one fully resected curative situation to a possible it doesn't happen all the time, but you do. You you can ha- go to a possible seeding. And when we operate on these patients, one of the main aims is not to break the capsule. For that reason. Got you. Thank you. That's very uh... So oh, so nice. in that scenario, we wouldn't biopsy. Um, but there are patients, obviously, where on the imaging you've got a larger mass. You've got a mass that's uh, already breached the capsule where there's a doubt about the diagnosis, so it doesn't look typically like a thymoma on imaging, it looks like it could be a, a thymic carcinoma or a lymphoma or a germ cell tumour, then in those situations, we would want a biopsy before we go into to do any surgery. Anything that is borderline resectable as well, you would want a biopsy first because you don't want to be in a situation where you put someone through a, a big operation with a non-curative outcome.
1: That's really helpful. And where does uh, PET fitting fit into that? So is is that more for the patients where you're worried about uh, a malignancy uh, or a germ cell tumour or lymphoma? Yeah, so PET, that's a really interesting question. And I'm not sure that we've completely
2: clarified this at the moment. Um, I think there are two ends of the spectrum where the answer is really clear. So in patients, again, who have this well encapsulated anterior mediastinal mass, It looks like a a thymic epithelial tumour. It looks like a stage one. We're not worried about any metastatic disease. They go straight to surgery. They don't really need a PET. You've got the other end of the scale where you've got invasive tumour. You might be worried about pericardial deposits, pleural deposits, pleural effusion. Is Is it a thymoma? Is it thymic carcinoma? Is it lymphoma? Those patients, definitely, I would want to do a PET to see what's going on if there's anything else where you might want to use it to plan your biopsy as well, particularly if there's any necrosis within the the specimen. It's in the middle that we're a little bit unclear, where the evidence from the IPMIC database was that the avidity um, did correlate to the WHO histological staging, but it's not really clear whether that changes what we do from a surgical point of view because if you've got resectable disease you're generally going to take it out so I think that area is a little bit more research-based certainly still with with tumors that I think I can resect but they're not really well encapsulated I'd probably still want a PET scan so that if they do have pleural deposits if they do have pericardial deposits I know that while I'm in there I want to take those out as well
1: Okay. Um, and then where does MRI fit into the kind of uh, schedule of things? We sometimes see patients seem to need to have MRI, some of them don't. You know, which which patients should we be thinking about? Yeah, right?
2: so um, MRI has become a really important imaging modality in thymic lesions. And I think that's something that's sort of changed, particularly in this country, um, over the last five to 10 years. Uh, when I was doing my training, it wasn't really something we even thought about doing but it's now very high up on on our agenda and i think this is really to avoid um it's to avoid this ongoing surveillance in patients who should be having an operation but it's also to avoid unnecessary surgery for patients with thymic hyperplasia and thymic cysts and we now have a very clear pathway within our center um, and since its imp- implementation, we've we've had a significant reduction in unnecessary reception for benign disease. And where MRI comes in is for that indeterminate and, anterior mediastinal mass, where the radiologist says, "Well, it looks solid, but it doesn't look really like a, a thymoma. I can't rule it out. It might be thymic hyperplasia." And that's where MRI is is really useful. Um, and Now, with um, the the particular type of of MRI that we use, which looks for chemical shift index, radiologists can really tell us with really good accuracy, whether this is thymic hyperplasia, a simple cyst, a complex cyst or a thymoma. And that's the detail that we need, because if they've got a simple cyst or thymic hyperplasia, then they can go either be discharged after six months or go into surveillance. If there's any concern about a complex
1: or a thymoma, then they come to the surgeons for resection. So essentially it's kind of useful on the on the kind of early end scale, trying to work out if it's hyperplasia or a cystic lesion potentially. is it the Yeah, thing? exactly.
2: It's those mm-hmm. ones where it says um, possible anterior mediastinal mass, but not really sure. This mm-hmm. gives us the confidence that we're not missing a thymoma and we can continue with six month
1: scan. And if nothing has changed, discharged with thymic hypoplasia And should we ask for a specific type of MRI? Um, I, I know sometimes you've said to me, oh, it looks like that patient kind of ran through the MRI there. And I know that there's different ways they they set up the gating thing. You talked about chemical shift. Is that the specific thing we should be asking for?
2: Yeah, so I think, um, I mean, what we did in our our centre was when we, we made this change with the pathway with these indeterminate lesions, we sat down and we looked at what the evidence was. And there is a particular protocol that they use, which um, the main thing is this chemical shift index, which is to do with a fat suppression technique. I think I'm not a radiologist. I won't pretend to be a radiologist, but um, (laughs) they're they're very good at it and they know what they're looking for. Um, And as long as you've got that specific protocol, uh, then there's an awful lot of information that we can get, uh, which gives a lot of reassurance that these patients don't necessarily need an operation.
1: So for this kind of workup stage, um, can these these investigations be performed locally? Um, you know, sometimes obviously patients come from uh, smaller hospitals. Um, is it worth them having their MRI locally? Obviously, PETs are often centralised, or, or should they? Is it better that perhaps when they they're referred to a surgeon, then that's done then? Yeah.
2: Yeah, it's a difficult one, isn't it? Because everything is coming so more and more specialised. Um, we don't want to take away, the, you know, the power to investigate patients. But I think, you know, thymic disease, thymomas, thymic epithelial tumors. They're they're quite a rare entity, and they need to be managed. I think in a, in a center that has a lot of experience with them and has radiologists that are looking at these scans day in day out that understand the differences. Um, And it's also a resource challenge as well. So personally, I think. These Any patient with a suspected anterior mediastinal mass needs to be discussed in an MDT where you have at least a thoracic surgeon present, um, preferably radiologists that are used to looking at these types of images that know the MRI protocols that that, that they want to be using, and also oncologists that deal with these diseases, um, so that you've not got one or two you know, cases a year, you've got many cases a month. Because what we know from lots of other disease types that high volume and experience leads to better outcomes.
1: I think, I, I guess in some ways, my, that question, my last question was probably a little bit moot in some ways because the way in the UK our MDTs work, um, they're all centered around, uh, you know, a, a center of thoracic surgery uh, and oncology specialist. So, uh, you know, I suppose the key thing is that patients Wherever they are, just taken to an MDT for discussion, and they should get that expert uh, thoracic surgery and kind of uh, uh, oncology opinion. Yeah,
2: yeah, and I think that's the key message, isn't it? That 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 anterior mediastinal masses are not benign things to be watched for years. Um, particularly now that we know MRI can be used to uh, identify between the benign and the um, not you know, and the malignant that. We, we should use that um, modality up front, and then we can put patients into the correct pathway early rather than waiting several years to see what happens.
0: I'm gonna ask about myasthenia. Um, everyone knows, <laughs> in the association we all know, thymomas and Um, Do you check uh, the myasthenia bloods, the anticonesterase antibodies in every in every thymemba patient regardless of symptoms?
2: So um, absolutely, I do. It's part of our pre-assessment protocol. Uh, Anyone coming for resection of a mediastinal mass will have um, acetylcholine receptor and anti-musk antibodies checked. Um, And the the reason I do it is, I mean, the best approach for resection of of a thymoma is a full thymectomy anyway. It's easy to say sitting in a podcast like this, when you've got a 85 year old in front of you with a little thymoma and you're thinking really should I take the horns out above the anomaly? maybe I won't Um, but you know strictly speaking that's the best approach the reason I do the um, antibodies up front is so that I know if they have got positive antibodies but subclinical myasthenia then I absolutely need to do a full thymectomy Um, because we have had a couple of cases with patients who've had a thymomectomy many years ago coming back with clinical myasthenia and then you're in a slightly difficult scenario of do I now do a redo operation to take the thymus out is that indicated for their myasthenia even though they've had previous surgery for their thymoma so I like to know up front if they've got positive antibodies and for me, that would be an indication that I need to, to, to really do a full thymectomy. You,
0: you've read my mind because my subsequent question I was going to ask in a minute was what benefit does surgery have for myosthenic patients beyond the control just of the thymoma in terms of their myosinic problems?
2: Yeah, so um, so even in non-thymomatous, thymoma, sorry, there's something over that, uh, <laughs> patients uh, with myasthenia gravis, uh, we would still want them to be referred for consideration of thymectomy. Um, we normally offer surgery to patients diagnosed within the last uh, sort of three years is, is used as a benchmark that can go up to four to five years. Um, we used to limit age, sort of it, it used to be 40 year olds, now then 60, 65. Personally, I'm not particularly prescriptive about that. Um, and will offer thymectomy to older patients if the risk of surgery is low and the patient understands the uncertainty about the outcome. Um, the most recent randomized controlled trials that we have have shown that uh, there is a benefit to patients with myasthenia gravis, non thymomatous myasthenia gravis undergoing thymectomy, but that benefit is variable. So um, when consenting patients, it's really important that they understand it over, you know, if we randomized everyone to one group or another, the overall outcome would be an improvement in symptoms, a reduction in need for uh, prednisolone and immunosuppression. Uh, some patients, a small number, but some even get complete resolution of symptoms, but it's impossible to predict who will mm-hmm. get what.
0: Yeah. And beyond knowing their receptor status and assuming they're not in a myosinic crisis, which we'll get onto in a second. Are there any particular optimizations you do for your asymptomatic myosthenic patient, or do you just treat them the the same?
2: If they're completely asymptomatic, uh, nothing really at all. Um, If they are symptomatic, but well controlled with medication, then uh, I always work closely with their neurologists uh, and we would, discuss timing of surgery Um, we would always make sure that they have all of their medication perioperatively, and occasionally if they have quite severe symptoms high medication needs then we would um, organize for them to have IV immunoglobulin therapy in the run-up to their surgery but a lot that is mainly I would say dictated by their neurology consultant and it would then be we just need to work on the logistics of how we marry the two together
0: The last time I saw this was about six weeks ago, maybe eight weeks ago, was a patient who was diagnosed uh, acutely with a myasthenic crisis. That was their presenting symptom of their myasthenia and their thymoma. Um, And we discussed in our MDT and the patient was was up on the ward being managed for their myosthenic crisis. Um, From your point of view in surgery, how long do you have to wait before you can sharpen your knife and do your surgery um, after their myosinic crisis? Are you doing it as soon as you can, or are you waiting for everything to be sorted by our neurology colleagues before seeing the patient?
2: I mean, ideally you'd want them to be as well as possible, I would say. Um, I, I I preach that this is not a benign disease that we need to, we need to perhaps almost stop calling these thymomas and call them thymic epithelial tumours mm. to get away from this mm. concept of benign disease. Mm. However, in the vast majority they are slow growing and when we're looking at risk benefit with patients who are unstable from a myasthenia point of view we do have time to wait and to get things onto an even keel. Having said that um, I had one patient which was, is, was very rare who had almost intractable ocular symptoms and no matter what uh, the neurologists did it just they just weren't getting better. And we actually transferred him as an inpatient um, to do his surgery because he didn't have respiratory symptoms, didn't have general muscular symptoms. And so it was felt actually the, the, we could get benefit from the surgery and the risk was not mm. particularly high. But I would say that that is the exception. And in the majority of cases, you would want to get some stability of the myasthenia before we go in to operate.
0: I do quite like the idea of a surgeon curing the myosinia, whereas the neurologist failed. I think that's brilliant. Um, Leanne loves me asking her about lung function tests. I know it's a subject close to her heart. Um, I I know nothing about lung function tests. Um, Whenever we try to do lung functions, someone having a myosinic crisis, um, Leanne, there's lots of rolling of eyes by my respiratory colleagues. Is it pointless trying to do lung function if someone's in myosinic crisis? And if so, how long should we wait? Um, And how reliable are they?
1: So uh, I know you like to ask me questions about lung function and I always um, uh, nod and pretend that I really know the answers, which is this is not true. But um, so I guess the, the tricky thing is that it's a bit like everything doing their lung function when they're really unwell. I think we always worry that basically it's going to they're going to struggle to do the test or, mm. or the they're going to get very poor uh, VCs, and then that's going to make everyone really anxious, you know, if they haven't been optimised yet, it seems a bit unfair. I think obviously, the most helpful thing is if if you've got a patient, um, if they've had previous um, lung function testing, you know, in the past before they're unwell, um, then at least you've got a baseline which can help people. Um, You know, um, the, the problem with obviously the disease is that when we do lung function when the tech the physiologists not technicians physiologists do the do the um testing they will usually do the testing several times and of course the patients are going to be fatigable because they're unwell and so actually every time you do it yeah. and and you know the patient they're sitting there with the patients doing it over and over the results are going to get a bit worse uh, with each repet- re- 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 um, re- repetition which is actually the opposite of normal people, because usually most people get better when uh, results Uh, making them do the test again, because they get better at the technique. So um, I guess the issue, as you said, when testing people in crisis is we're going to give them, uh, uh, you know, they're going to have false kind of poor results. Um, I feel like a better kind of screen is if you've got a baseline before they're unwell. Um, And then I guess the other thing, uh, Henrietta might correct me here, is my understanding is that the, the problems in their anterior mediastino, it's not necessarily their lungs that's the, the issue. It's their lung muscles, their, their kind of chest wall muscles obviously are weaker, but their actual lung parenchyma is not the usually the issue, although they may have other conditions. So, you know, the same things apply to any anaesthesia if you've got awful COPD as well as myasthenia. Uh, but, um, yeah, it, it, I think we kind of avoid testing people whilst they're unwell because it seems to give them these falsely poor results. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and I guess your second part of your question was when should we do it again? Well, I guess the answer is when they're better. Yeah. Um, yeah. Or at least they're close to their baseline again. Um, and, and you probably want to look at the, the traces because the physiologists do number them and actually whatever they get is their best result is their best results, yeah don't yeah. look at the average too much yeah um because that might be poor if they've done it several times yeah
0: cool i'll be quiet and let you ask about robots
1: uh well i know you're really excited to hear Very about excited. The robots yeah about um, robots. i think i think tom imagines some sort of walking talking so surely it is uh, <laughs> it has to be yeah. um, <laughs> <laughs> i'm so disappointed uh, not quite sci-fi well henrietta's going to tell us all about does it yeah. so um uh maybe we shouldn't jump in straight to the robot I was going to ask first a little bit just about uh, surgery in general so um, when you look to take someone for surgery um, is it is it solely based on whether on imaging it looks like it could be resectable is that is that kind of how you judge who you should take first for an operative procedure Henrietta?
2: Yeah, so uh, imaging is the mainstay that we use to assess resectability um, and the CT scan is is really the best investigation that we have to look at that. You'd want a contrast CT scan because it's the mediastinal vessels that normally cause the, the most trouble for invasive disease. Um, a PET CT might be helpful. Uh, but that's mainly going to be looking at other deposits. So is there pericardial pleural deposits? And that will be planning disease, as a uh, sorry, planning surgery, as opposed to necessarily saying that patients aren't suitable for surgery. Because unlike in lung cancer, there is a role for surgery in thymic epithelial tumors, where there is pleural and pericardial disease. We know that if we can remove all of the Um, disease within the chest, that still gives a better prognosis, Um, whereas in patients with lung cancer who had metastatic pleural disease, they wouldn't be candidates for surgery. Um, Similarly, in advanced local disease, um, we might be more aggressive, so uh, we can reconstruct or patch the superior vena cava, we can divide or reconstruct the innominate vein, Um, So all of these things we would look at on a CT scan with contrast, and it wouldn't necessarily to be, say, resectable or not resectable, although obviously some will still be unresectable. But it's also to plan the approach and to understand what sort of support we might need, um, uh, even in terms of putting somebody on um,
1: cardiopulmonary bypass in order to get a clear resection. Okay, so that's, that's quite a key take-home message, isn't it? The difference between lung cancer, where a pleural deposit, for example, would mean you wouldn't go ahead with a resection, from from your point of view, the imaging helps you more to plan how extensive your resection might need to be. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And what what are kind of the difficult uh, surgical approaches you can uh, take, and and does the imaging kind of change which approach you might take? Whether you might do something minimally or have to take a more kind of aggressive approach? Yeah. Yeah,
2: definitely. So um, the approach will be down to two things. Firstly, it will be uh, dependent on the disease stage. And secondly, it will be a surgeon experience. So some surgeons may prefer to take an open approach if they haven't got a lot of experience in minimally invasive. Others might tackle slightly more advanced disease, minimally invasive and only open when, you know, they feel they need to do a vascular resection, something like that. Um, one of the most important factors, and I think we'll talk about it later, but um, I think it's fine to just keep going on about it, is an R0 resection. That is, it's the, most, it's the, it's the goal in, in thymoma surgery and thymic carcinoma surgery. So you've got to think about that when you're planning your approach. And if you don't think you can do that minimally invasively, then do a stenotomy, do a tram, trap trapdoor, do whatever you need to do, but uh, we mustn't. What
1: a trapdoor is, just so because what you know. Oh. <laughs> we're, we're, we're it, <laughs> yeah, yeah, sorry. So and that would be right. uh, that
2: sounds... would be dividing the sternum and then coming across to the side as well and lifting basically half the
1: chest off. It sounds okay. worse than it is, I promise. Um, okay,
2: okay.
1: But... that makes <laughs> sense to us because obviously dividing the sternum makes sense if you, there's more basic disease. Yeah. So those are kind yeah, of so, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so we yeah. have, you know, we have
2: different options: um, robotic-assisted, video-assisted. In the US, they uh, do a cervical approach as well. So they actually make a cut in the neck and come lift up the sternum and come underneath it. We don't do that so much in Europe. All of these approaches are fine for early, well encapsulated disease. Um, but if, you know, for for technical or safety
1: reasons, a bigger cut is needed, then then that's what we'll do. Okay. And we uh, know you're uh, kind of a leading, uh, a leader in robotic resection. So can you talk us through what that involves? Just just so t- Tom can uh, understand yeah, the and how the robot works. And, and, <laughs> and who how the robot works, yeah. the <laughs> I yeah. didn't design
2: it myself, but I'll give mm-hmm. it a go. So um, basically, so robotic assisted thoracic surgery, it, it's just really another minimally invasive technique that we have. And uh, what it means is that we make, uh, but three or four, usually for mediastinal disease, it's three incisions between the uh, ribs. So we go in through the intercostal space and we put a metal uh, cannula or port in that space. Um, and it means that we can operate with eight to 12 millimeter incisions. So for a standard thymectomy or thymoma, we would have two eight millimeter incisions and one 12 millimeter incision. And we would put the, the port through that. And then The um, instruments and the camera then pass through those ports and they are attached to the robot which sits on top of the patient and then as the surgeon I'm controlling the robot from a console that is normally a few metres away in the theatre but uh, I'm not scrubbed at the table, I'm sitting at a console looking into my monitor and controlling the robotic arms with that console. And the real benefits come from the fact that I have 3D magnified vision within the chest. So I can see every little tiny vessel, um, every, you know, anything that I need to control. Um, The instruments are uh, uh, wristed, so they actually have greater rotation than the human wrist. Um, And we also insufflate um, carbon dioxide. And that means not only within the mediastinum, and particularly where it's a really tight space, we get much more space. Um, but it also, as you open the planes, the CO2 goes in between the planes and helps us to dissect out vessels and, and structures more accurately. Um, so it's really, I found, has, has revolutionized this mediastinal surgery that we can achieve safely. Um, particularly in, in this patient group with thymoma
1: myasthenia. That sounds amazing, yeah. So, I mean, essentially, because you're remote, it offers both magnification and the use of the CO2 to look at the plane. So and the th- I presume with the 360 kind of rotation of the robot arms, you can essentially get um, a clearer and better kind of resection. Yeah, it makes it easier for you yeah, to do so that. It, Yeah, it, Exactly. And, and it's sort of, you know... Um,
2: People who do video assisted will say, well, you can do that with video assisted. You can and you can do CO2. But really, the, the view is amazing when you're dissecting up above the anominate, um, And also I've done I've done some um, patients who have a, a thymoma and myosinia, and it's been diving down in between the head and neck vessels as they're coming off the aorta. And these are quite scary places to be operating, even in an open setting. Um, But what the robot gives you is that beautiful view and that um, fine dissection that allows you to be really confident that you are safe and you have control in these areas where you're dealing with, you know, big, big structures, big head and neck structures and structures that can bleed if you get into trouble. Um, But it, it gives you such clear view and such accuracy that it means that we can do these operations safely, but with a minimally invasive technique.
0: I, I i love a bit of technology and it, it does sound amazing um and it's the reason i didn't do surgery because i couldn't stand up for so long and now transpires. you just sit down you can which sit
2: down obviously so easy
0: <laughs> um but being unconscious I, I love a bit of evidence do do we know it's better has anyone compared outcomes complications or is it just surgeons are saying this is so much better therefore we will we will use this expensive toy
2: yeah very good very good point um i think in media work it's going to be difficult to prove. I think it, just because of the numbers, in lung cancer there are trials, um, and what we've definitely shown is that it is not any worse than open. Certainly not worse than video assisted. And I think if we were to ever do a randomized controlled trial, it would come out on top. But it's difficult to mm-hmm. ever think we're going to we're going to go down that path now. Um, in mediastinal work, what we can prove is that there is a reduced uh, conversion rate. So, because of the better view and accuracy, a uh, lower number need to go change to stenotomy. Um, and to we do now. have the it's evidence healthy. for that. Yeah. Um, and I think, yeah, you're right. It, it's not going to be something that's going to have randomized controlled trial data behind it. But the more surgeons who I teach, who do video-assisted thymectomies and thymic disease, as soon as they see the change in the view that you get with robotic surgery, it's just so much more comfortable and you just feel so much more confident doing it.
1: I presume there's a quicker recovery. If I remember rightly from my fellowship, the, um, the, the robotic patients, their post-operative stay was often small. I know in lung resections was shorter because of the smaller incisions and the is so that, if we're yeah if we're
2: comparing than? robotic to sternotomy 100% uh, that would be very easy to prove um, my uh, robotic in fact I did a, a robotic thyectomy on Monday he went home yesterday I often don't even put a chest drain in these patients so length of stay 100% uh, we can demonstrate that complications I'm sure we can demonstrate. Um, Whether you can prove the difference between video assisted and robotic assisted is always difficult, but certainly uh, compared to open, um, the recovery time, length of stay and complications is much smaller with minimally invasive.
1: To kind of watch this space it sounds like it's something that we see more of our surgeons doing and then just just touching on the last bit of that because you said that your resec- you felt that um your resections were more thorough um how important is the r0 rese- resection we, we kind of want to know uh what, what we did we should do if there are R one or r2 resections yeah
2: yeah so um completeness of resection is is probably the most important prognostic factor for um, these tumours. And it it has to be the the goal, really, um, because that changes their prognosis significantly. Um, It needs to be taken into consideration when you're planning the surgery. So I think in patients where you really think you're not going to get even an R1, you're looking at an R2 resection, then perhaps surgery is not the right thing to do. And you need to see whether they respond to neoadjuvant treatment first because if they don't then actually you're putting them through a major procedure for no real benefit Um, so in those cases where you're really not sure you can get a clear reception then I think probably they need to have some treatment up front with our oncologists and if they respond well then excellent you go in if they don't then they're probably not going to do well in the long run anyway. Um having said that, obviously, we still get cases that come out post-operatively with an R1, rarely an R2, but it does occasionally happen. And those are the patients that I would refer uh, on to have consideration for post-operative radiotherapy um, with or without chemotherapy.
0: I'm, I'm really mindful of time. So I'm going to ask two very quick questions and I'm going to ask you for two very quick answers. After surgery, uh, in terms of follow up, do you prefer MRI? For younger patients all patients or no patients
2: so again another good question and i think this is an evolving area i tend to alternate between ct and mri um that's mainly to do with uh resource and the fact that thymomas we follow up for 10 years so 10 years of ct seems like a lot of radiation in a 20 30 year old patient i think probably mri all MRI would be the way to go, but we need we need that to be matched by the MRI that's available and the radiologists available to report those. So I tend to alternate at the moment.
0: And do you follow any particular guidelines or do you make it up as you go along?
2: So I follow the um, uh, NCCN guidelines, which are the National Comprehensive Cancer Network guidelines. Um, and so I would do six to 12 monthly um, cross-sectional imaging for two years, and then annual cross-sectional imaging for 10 years in thymoma, five years in thymic carcinoma. Uh, and that, that's for the R0 type stage one. Others that have gone on to have oncology usually are referred back to me and then follow a similar surveillance pattern.
0: And my last question uh, is, um, obviously, we've got lots of incredibly excited people listening to this because we're full of excited people. Um, If you've really piqued someone's interest, they want to be part of specialist thymic thymic group. Is there such a body, he said, giving an opportunity to promote your your own work Um, (laughs) if people are interested in, in thymic stuff?
2: So, um, well, uh, yes, I mean, I'm sure there are, separate, I, I, I'm a member of ITMIG, which is the uh, International Thiamic Malignancy Interest Group. That's the international one. Um, and they have a, a good website that has good resource for both um, patients and clinicians and annual meetings, etc. cetera. And then also BTOG have a subcommittee for Thiamic Specialist Interest. And um, I have a number of resources online and, and also um, meetings, I'm sure, coming up. I'm um, sure. I'm sure.
0: <laughs> centre of all that's good and great, talking.
2: Yes. So, so, yeah, there are, I, I, know, I think those, you know, there, there are, those are the, the two that I would look to get involved with. Um, and they're not mutually exclusive. I think work very much together on a, at a sort of British and then international level.
1: Fantastic, Henrietta. Thank you so much for talking to us this uh, today. And so, just to kind of summarise at the end, what do you think uh, the key take-home messages for, uh, are for our, uh, those that refer and view uh, pa- pa- patients like this in clinic?
2: Yeah. So, um, not, uh, you know, my my number one would be please don't ignore anterior mediastinal lesions. Um, they may well be slow growing, but they're not benign. And uh, I've seen too many that have, have been seen many, many years ago and then have come back in a, in a much worse situation. And particularly now that we have MRI as an integral part of the diagnost- diagnostic pathway, we can find out upfront whether they are uh, anything to be worried about, need to be resected or can be watched. So I think referring into an MDT um, that deals with this sort of thing day to day is the best way forward for these patients. Um, the other point would be that um, surgical resection for early stage disease is now often done with a minimally invasive technique with very low surgical risk. So again, refer these patients into centres where they have experience in this approach and where they do a high volume, and that will give us the best outcomes. Um, in Because it's a, it's often a, a rare disease, but actually... Um, we see quite a lot of these, uh, and as do other centers in the UK. Um, and so the more that we can see these patients early, the better outcomes they'll get and the better better treatment they'll be given.
1: Super. Um, that's been absolutely re- very informative, Henrietta. So I think we've all learned something there. So thank you very much for uh, volunteering to talk to us for this podcast. Thank uh, thank you so much.
2: No problem at all. Then very. Good talking with you.